journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Shavua Tov and uh, welcome back to everyone from everywhere. Hope everybody is staying safe. Everybody's staying sane and uh, hunkering down as we pass through the eye of the storm. And uh, what better way to spend it than learning Torah? It says that learning some Torah increases peace in this world. It brings blessing to this world. And so it is my pleasure to spend the next 45, 50 minutes with you traveling the Bible. And we can do that virtually, right? We can do that with me being in my home and you being on the other side uh, as a recipient, Chai FM being somewhere else. Today's world is absolutely fantastic. We don't have to be physically together to learn together. And so we are going to pick up where we left off last uh, year. At the close of the year, we were sitting in Parashat Toldot. That is in the book of Genesis. We are hanging around chapter 25, and we were discussing just before we went um, on holiday the entire relationship between Yaakov and Esau, between Jacob and Esau, his twin brother. And uh, as mentioned, and if, you, if you've missed those episodes, do go listen to the podcasts. Uh, the whole story of Jacob and Esau is in fact the whole story of the Jewish people, obviously represented by, represented by Jacob who fathers the 12 tribes and that in turn fathers the, the, the children of Israel, and Asab, his twin brother, who by all rights and all means should have actually been the fourth of our forefathers. Just like we had four foremothers, we should have had four forefathers. But due to his evil nature and his wickedness um, and his inability to, to, to embrace the, the teaching and learnings of his grandfather Abraham, his father Yitzchak, he actually fell out of grace and he did not um, maintain that title. That explains, by the way, why Jacob landed up marrying two sisters. While there was this whole deception, and we'll, we'll get to that story when we get there, there was that whole deception of Leah marrying Yaakov first, Leah marrying Jacob first, because it said that Leah knew that it actually was written, it was foretold that she would be the wife of Asab. And when she saw how wicked he was turning out and what bad choices he was making, she cried bitterly, it says, until her eyes became dim. She actually affected her eyesight. And uh, history was rewritten for her, and she was meritorious to marry uh, Yaakov, along with her sister Rachel, and uh, Yaakov himself takes on the fathering of the entire Jewish nation. But the relationship between Yaakov and Esav um, was an ongoing one. Initially, it was one of hatred. Esav, uh, for many, many years, wanted to kill uh, Yaakov, and it was only towards the end, um, when Yaakov had established his home, with Lavan, he had established the, 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 the children of Israel. He had become unbelievably wealthy and he was making his way back to the land of Israel that Asaph comes up to meet him again. And uh, Yaakov obviously prepares accordingly. 
He's expecting um, Asaph wanting to come and kill him. He divides up his whole camp in case one, one, one camp um, dies that the other can escape. He, he bribes him and prepares gifts for him. And of course, he prays to God. And um, as we know that when he does meet Asaph, Asaph comes around um, and he reconciles and wants to go back with Jacob to Israel and settle together. And that Jacob, to that Jacob uh, says, you know what, we're too young, we're moving slowly, you go ahead, we'll see you when we get there. And as explained many, many times, I've repeated it many times, I'll repeat it now again for any new listeners and for those that um, are old listeners and those that are committed and have been learning for a long time, it's good for us to remember that Yaakov and Esav have to land up being friends because at the end of time, um, as we are representative of the Jewish people and Esav is representative of what becomes the Christian world, the Western world, um, they needed to become our allies and um, Mashiach, part of the redemptive process is that we see peace. And we've been seeing that very much in front of our eyes in the last couple of years with the biggest power, uh, the United States and President Trump recognizing Israel again, recognizing Jerusalem, its capital, recognizing the Golan Heights, recognizing um, Israel and standing up for Israel because really that is the true identity of Esau, that he is a brother to Yaakov and um, he needs to behave that way. You might ask, well, what's going on now? It seems that there has been a halt. It seems that things have got worse, not better, just in terms of the way biblical prophecy is playing out. Um, I do not have a definitive answer, but I do know that God is running the world. That is um, unequivocal, um, that God runs the hearts and the minds of the leaders, and we just must wait and see um, how things pan out. Um, things can flip in a matter of seconds in any way, just like uh, one day the light switch flipped and there was a thing called coronavirus and we are all uh, you know, suffering under it right now. So too when it comes to the reconciliation of Yaakov with Esau and his brother Yishmael, as we've seen with the Abraham Accords, these have been great steps forward in the redemptive process and uh, we will see how this is going to carry on and um, play itself out in the coming days, weeks, and months. What we are going to do right now, though, is take a big step back and go to the, the, the beginnings of the relationship of uh, Jacob and Esau. And we are going to be studying the verses in chapter 25. We're going to be doing verses 29 all the way up to 34. So just before we go for a break, we're just going to, I'm going to read the verses so that we have a basis of understanding what we are going to be studying. So by Yazid Yaakov Nazid, Yaakov was once simmering a stew. Esav came in from the field and he was very tired. Tired. Verse 30. Esav says to Yaakov, Please give me, let me swallow some of this red stuff. I am tired. I am tired. 
And that is why we call him Edom, because he said, give me Haltieni Namina Edom Ha Edom Hazed, this red stuff. That's why another name for Esav is Edom. Vayomer Yaakov, and Yaakov replies to him, Mechra Chayom et Bechoratcha li, as of today, sell me your birthright. So he starts a negotiation. Uh, Yaakov doesn't want to give it to him without uh, something in return. Vayomer Esav, and Esav says, he obviously thinks about this offer that he should sell him his birthright. Look, I'm going here, I'm going to die. What of what use is this birthright to me? Yaakov says to him, Make an oath to me today. He makes an oath. He sells the birthright to Yaakov. And then Yaakov gives Esav, bread, unzid adanshim, and lentil stew, by yochal, and he eats, by yesht, and he drinks, by yakam, and then he gets up, by yelech, and he goes, by yivez, Esav, et ha and Esav despises the birthright. It's literally three or four verses. Um, it seems very, very simplistic. The guy comes in hungry, and for a bowl of lentil stew, he sells his birthright because simply it looks as if he doesn't actually care too much more. And um, Yaakov just seals the deal by making sure that he swears. He gives him the food. And as we say, Bob's your uncle. That seems to close this chapter. But as always in Torah, there is so much more to learn. And I want to explore that with you. If, you'd, if you have a question or a comment, you can on 34519. Or 061, this is a telegram number, 061-895-1019. We'll be back shortly after this ad break. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back and we are going to be dissecting now what is going on with uh, this whole discussion between Yaakov and Esau. If you do have a book of Genesis in front of you, you're most welcome to follow in. We're looking at chapter 25, verse 29. So let's go to the first verse, verse 29, by Yazed Yaakov Nazid. Yaakov was um, cooking up a simmering a stew. Um, let's understand why, why is the Torah particular about telling us what he was cooking? Why can't it just say that, you know, one day Esau came in, he was very, very hungry. Yaakov was in the kitchen and he swapped food for his, you know, for his birthright. Why be specific that he was simmering a stew? Well, what had happened actually was that the day before, um, their grandfather Abraham had died. And um, Abraham had died at the age of 175 years old. And it says that God took five years off his life because Asaph, in fact, had become unbelievably wicked. And he didn't want to give the grandfather, the Agmut Nefesh, the, 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 um, the grief of watching a grandson of his really go off the rails. And in fact, um, what had happened was that Esau had become 
quite wild. And the day that uh, he came in when uh, Yaakov was cooking the stew, he had in fact committed already five major sins. Because it says, by Yazid Yaakov Nazid, Yaakov was cooking a meal, the Yavo Asaf Minasade, the Huayev, and Yaakov was coming from the field and he was very tired. Well, if you rape a young bride and then you go ahead and murder a man and then deny the essence of God and deny immortality of the soul and reject your birthright, you're quite an exhausted, painted human being by the end of the day. You're basically denying your whole existence, denying God, denying everything around you. You're just a wilder chaya, a wild, wild person. And um, it, this raping of the young bride and murdering the man, um, they didn't have WhatsApp or they didn't have uh, media in those days, so it couldn't be known straight away, but it was about to be known. And that's why we are told that God's, uh, God took away the life of Abraham the day before. So we know that Abraham died in the year 2123. That's in the Jewish calendar. If you want to know um, from the Gregorian calendar, it's 1638 before the Common Era. And Yitzchak was sitting mourning. He was in Shiva. And this was going to be his first meal after he buried his father, Abraham. And uh, I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about the laws of the, the first meal in particular. The first meal is called Seudat Habra'a, the consolation meal. And uh, the halakha, the, the Jewish law states that if one is a mourner, um, a legitimate mourner of uh, uh, a blood relative of the family, and then you're going to be sitting shiva, you are not allowed to eat your own food or cook your own food. And therefore, it is halakha that the first meal um, needs to be prepared by others, those that are not mourning. Today, thank God, we have a lot of chesed in the community. We have a lot of kindness in the community. And this kindness extends for all seven days that the mourners are, are, are exempt from making their own meals and the community supports them by bringing meals. We're focusing particularly on the first meal called Seudat Habra'ah. Now, why would the Torah mandate that um, one cooks the meal for the mourners? Well, firstly, the mourner's heart is very bitter uh, because of the loss, full of grief. And when one is very grieved, the last thing one thinks about is food. Therefore, God, as a kindness, recognizes this human condition and um, he commands others to prepare the first meal for the mourner. The second is a, a, a form of, and this is why it's called the consolation meal, um, it is an act of consolation for the mourner because when he sees others are going to the trouble of bringing him food, he, he starts to begin to forget his grief because he must deal with his, uh, with his visitors. So that is the custom of why we worry about making food for a shiver house and in particular, and most importantly, that first meal um, that needs to be done. The only time that one does not necessarily eat a complete consolation meal 
is if the burial is very late on Friday afternoon, uh, again, we, one would have to, um, we would have to, uh, to, to get rabbinical counsel um, in such cases as to what the cutoff point is. But if it's very late on Friday afternoon, one doesn't have the consolation meal because it will ruin the appetite of the mourner for Shabbat. And it says the honor of Shabbat is more important than other good deeds. And so that is something um, that is let go of. But as to the exact time where one doesn't have a consolation meal, most times, uh, particularly in modern times, now they'll make sure that the burial isn't very, very late on a, on a, on a Friday. Um, this is in an extraordinary circumstance. But of course, one needs to get proper rabbinical counsel in such a case. Also, uh, the halakha states that if a person hears about the death of a relative after 30 days, um, and it's even true in a case of a parent, if, uh, the new, if, if you hear the news after 30 days of the death of the person, then you don't eat the consolation meal. Um, if it's within 30 days of the death, then one still makes that first meal. Again, we're talking about exceptional rules. And as always, we must refer back to uh, our rabbis and get the appropriate rabbinical um, guidance on that. Now, what does one normally eat at a meal of consolation? One washes. Uh, there's bread. Bagels are, are brought um, because they are round and they signify that, you know, there is a circle of life and there is death, there is birth and everything in between, and a hard-boiled egg. The reason for the hard-boiled egg is that we are told that there is an illusion that the egg has no mouth. And similarly, at this point in time, when the person who is mourning is eating it, a mourner has no mouth, meaning he silently accepts his grief and he realizes that everything is decreed by divine providence, and even when something, God forbid, happens and or appears to be a terrible tragedy, he accepts it with love. He's also given something strong to drink, um, wine, etc., etc., to help uh, with his bitterness and to clear his mind. If there are three men present or ten, okay, then grace after meals is said, and one can look in the... In, in, in the benching, uh, in, in a siddur, look at the Birkat Amazon, there is specific things to be said when one um, is sitting in the company of three men or more to ten, um, and one, one benches in the house of mourning. In this case, there wasn't bagels, but there was, there was lentils. And lentils, I think, play the same part as a bagel. Uh, in, insofar as lentils are perfectly round, and again, there it's there to remind the mourner that the world is round, and it does go through cycles of life and death, and that's what it is. So, just to understand now the circumstances in which we are going to see this uh, dialogue between Yaakov and Esav, is Esav is cooking the consolation meal for his father Yitzhak, who is sitting in mourning over the death of his father, Abraham. Um, Asab is oblivious. He's, he's, he's wild. He's gone and committed heinous crimes. Um, he comes in 
from the field. He comes in from what he's doing. He's exhausted. He's frustrated. He's tired. And he sees his food. And he just wants to fulfill his bodily needs, his, body, his need for hunger and for thirst. And he has absolutely zero appreciation for anything spiritual, anything connected to godliness. Um, and, and, and in a sense, he's, he's hit rock bottom in terms of his appalling behavior. So when he walks in and he sees that Jacob is simmering a stew of lentils, okay, it's not about why are you cooking this, but I want this now. And so he says, Please let me swallow. He kind of like almost um, says like, just throw this, this, this meal down me. Okay. I am tired. Absolutely exhausted using so much energy for all the negativity that he, that he uh, perpetuated that day. Now the words, na could mean please give me, but na could also mean raw. Because when we look at other places in the Torah, when we are talking, for example, about the Korban Pesach, the Paschal Lamb, the word na is also used, but there it means raw. So our rabbis bring to the attention that he was so hungry that if Yaakov went to say, well, I can give you some stuff now, but it's, it's raw, it hasn't been cooked. When he said, just give it to me raw, like pour it down my throat raw, this Edom, ha Edom Hazer, this red stuff. And that is why one of the reasons we are told that he is called Edom, okay, that he is called red. We know that he was born rugged, he was born red, okay, um, but he now just calls this stuff red and um, he wants to, to, to eat it. And therefore, another name for Asab and his progeny is called Edom. More than that, we must understand and know that we are in the Edomite exile. We are still in Galut Edom. We are in the exile of Edom, the Jewish people, which means from the destruction of the second temple that was perpetuated by the Romans, who are, who were descendants of Edom, descendants of Asaph. We went into the Edomite exile, and we are waiting now. This has been the longest exile, and um, we are we are waiting to 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 see its redemption. So Edom becomes a very, very big part of our lives, still is a very, very big part of our lives, and is representative of the Christian Western world, as I said. So he says to Yaakov, give me, <clears throat> uh, let me swallow this red, red stuff, I'm tired. And Yaakov decides to use this as a negotiating tool. And by Yomer Yaakov, and so Yaakov says, Mechra chayoim et b'choratcha li. Sell me today your birthright. Now let's understand a little bit about what did it mean? What was he actually even selling? So before the tabernacle, before the Mishkan was erected in the desert, the law was that the oldest son um, had the privilege of offering sacrifices. That was the birthright of the firstborn. 
when the tabernacle was built and then obviously when the tabernacle moved into the land of Israel and then eventually got its permanent home in the Beit HaMikdash, in the temple itself, but from the time the tabernacle was built, God commanded that this privilege should be taken away from the firstborns and given over to the Kohanim, to the descendants of Aharon. So the firstborns were ripped of that birthright, the reason being because who were the people that ran to create a golden calf and offer sacrifices on it when Moshe disappeared? Well, none other than the firstborns. And therefore, God took the priesthood away from them and gave them to the sons of Aaron. So Yaakov, this is what was Yaakov's thinking in his mind. I know for certain that Asaph has partaken of idolatrous rites, and therefore he is defiled. How is it that he can bring sacrifices on behalf of the whole family, that, that, that he has the right? And therefore he goes and negotiates and says to, uh, to Asaph, I'll give you, I'll give you some lentil stew and I'll give you to eat and drink. Just sell me this birthright, i.e. sell me this privilege to be the one that will be allowed to bring sacrifices to God. And he makes it very, very specific. He wants it chayom, today, as of today, right off of this very, very uh, minute that he wanted the, this transaction to be, so to speak, um, um, as clear as the light of day. And um, the reason he does that is that because in truth, one cannot go and negotiate on something that one doesn't have. The birthright only becomes the birthright and it becomes enforceable once the father has passed away and the firstborn son then assumes, so to speak, the leadership of the family. That in, in, in those days then, the, all, all possessions would go to the firstborn, and he would step, so to speak, into his father's shoes. Right at this point in time, when they are having this negotiation, the birthright is meaningless, because they cannot exercise firstborn Rights. So Yaakov is very, very aware of this, and so he says to Asaph, Kahayon, today I want you to give me, um, I want you to make the oath today. The intention is to confirm the sale as the law is today. Now, obviously, also, when selling now, uh, if one sells one's inheritance, uh, while the father's still alive, then you're obviously selling it for much, much less. The value is much, much less than its full worth. Um, and that is really where Yaakov was wanting to, to cash in. That today, sell it to me today for the value it is today, and the value that it is today is basically zero. So... Um, you know, he tries to uh, turn the hand of Asaph and saying, in an implied way, it's actually worth worth nothing. Okay. One other very interesting thing is that another part of the Midrash goes and says that Yaakov actually received a prophecy. When he was a student at the Academy of Shein Ve'eva, 
he was told there the following prophecy, that Asab is wicked, warlike, and that he will dominate your descendants. But if, but if he will sell your birthright for a bowl of stew, um, do so and, and, and get it done because he is easily bribed. And you will then allow your children to eventually gain the upper hand. And when down the line, his descendants will persecute the Jewish people, we will be able to go and bribe uh, Asab. This will be like the sign that, we, that he's bribable moving on. And in truth, we do. It says that even his guardian angel could be bribed by the goat center Azazel once a year on Yom Kippur. That's an entire whole story, but it is a goat that has a red string around it that, that, that is, is used to carry away the sins of the Jewish people. So the, he was told by prophetically, try get him to sell his birthright for some stew, because if you do, you will allow the Jewish people to have an upper hand. If he doesn't sell his birthright, it's a sign that he doesn't accept bribes and his children will, um, will, will suffer. So on all, on all sides, Yaakov is very, very clear. Um, he knows what his negotiation is and he says, sell it now, today, because it's worthless to you. Um, I want it today because he understands by that is that he will allow the Jewish people to eventually have an upper hand on the people or the descendants of Asaph. If you have an issue that you are dealing with and need to talk, remember that Chai FM has a helpline for you. 22 trained counselors are standing by to speak to you. It's anonymous. It will not be broadcast. We are here to help you. 24 hours, 7 days a week. Call 0800 242436. The Chai FM helpline. Caring, compassionate, confidential. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. We are going through this negotiation with Yaakov and Asab, and basically you can see that Yaakov calls it correctly. Because what does Asab say? Asab actually thinks about it for perhaps a split second and says, Look, I am going to die. Of what use is the birthright to me? Well, that in a sense could be a bit of a question, okay? Uh, because it's a very, actually, it's a very surprising statement because wicked, immoral people usually give no thought to death. And Asaph at this point in time was only 15 years old. So why does it say, I'm going to die? It sounds like he knew something. So the Midrash goes and explains he did know something. He had, in fact, we, we had learned, and in Pashat Noach, right back in the beginning, we had learned that there was a very wicked king called Nimrod. Nimrod had inherited a very valuable coat, cloak, that had belonged once to Adam Harishan, to Adam, the first man. And this cloak contained pictures of all sorts of animals and birds, and when Nimrod went out into the fields, those the creatures would, would, would become uh, very quiet and would come to him, and he would take any of them without too much effort. And that's why lots of people thought that Nimrod was God. Now, what had happened consequent to that is that 
down the line, Esau had stolen the garment from Nimrod. And when Nimrod heard that uh, about it, he threatened to kill Esau. And therefore, Esau says, Look, I'm going to die. Because he knew that at any point in time, uh, Nimrod was going to actually come. Him or his men were going to come after Esau to try get back his coat. And so he figured, well, who knows if I'm going to escape? And at this moment, what use do I have of the birthright? Right now, I'm high, tired, I'm hungry, I need food. Um, you know, like, yeah, I, I really don't need it. It absolutely makes no sense for me to, to, to keep it. And so what happens is, is that he diminishes. He doesn't think beyond uh, his nose and he's ready to sell it for something that is momentarily satisfactory. And this is something that, you know, you would look at and think, you know, man, would you not have a little bit more sense than that? But unfortunately, even if we look at our, in today's world, at how um, needy people are to have physical things satisfy their needs, even though, in truth, they, they can gather more and more and more, and they'll never satisfy the need if the need is a spiritual one um, and a, a intrinsic one. But he was acting very much from his nefesh bahamis, from his animal soul, that just desires immediate physical gratification. And for him, figuring, well, Nimrod would probably come and take me out uh, very soon. Or, um, you know, like, really, what use do I have of the birthright? I'd have to wait for my father. Yitzchak to die for me to even start using it. It just absolutely made no sense. And on his womb, he agrees. So by Yomer Yaakov, so Yaakov says to him, He li kayon. Then swear to me, today. Again, he stresses the today. Don't come and tell me that this wasn't a sellable product and I only could have sat and negotiated it with you when you know, our father has passed away, etc., etc. He says, Kayom, you are agreeing to um, sell this to me right now, at this very present moment, in the state that it is, even though it's in a sense a potential. It is, it's, it is not of value today. And, yep, he, 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 he agrees by Yishava lo. He swears to him, he takes the oath. In fact, we're told that he brought together a gang of outlaws so they could witness the oath um, and to show that he was serious about selling his birthright. By Yimkor et Bechorato, he sells his birthright to Yaakov. And Yaakov then fulfills his part of the deal. The Yaakov Natal Esav Lechem, and Zid Adashim, he gives him bread. And he gives him stew, a lentil stew. By Yochal, he eats. By Yesht, he drinks. By Yakam, he gets up. By Yelech, and he leaves. And basically, what this verse is saying is that he moves along. By Yibez, Esav, the Bechaira, he completely rejected uh, the Bechaira. Now, what did he really, really, really sign? He signed off on his birthright, and part of the birthright also is the ability to be buried in the burial plot of his father, which was the Machpelah. We know that Abraham bought it for Sarah. Abraham and Sarah are buried in there. Uh, Yitzchak and Rivka are buried in there. And interestingly, who is buried there? Not Esau, but 
Yaakov, because part of this entire deal of being the firstborn is the right to be buried in the Machpelah cave. And by him um, buying it for a free meal, uh, he lands up with giving up that birthright as well. We will get to it, but um, one of the things that we should know is that uh, when Asaph does die, he doesn't get fully buried there. What does get buried there is his head. But I'm going to keep you in suspense on that note, and um, we will discuss that when we get to that point where Asaph passes away. There is one other opinion that went and said that he had no intention of setting the birthright, that he just wanted to eat Yaakov's food, have some fun at his expense. Um, so when he says the word, um, the, the word Edom, Edom actually comes from the word Dmam, which means silent. So he said, I, I was silent, I didn't say a word, I'll let Yaakov think that I agreed to the deal, and later I'll tell him, just because I was silent, you assumed that I agreed to my birthright. Um, and I never had any such intention, I just wanted a good meal, and I'll call off the deal. But we're told that the angel Michal and Gabriel, the two of them, saw the, the, the bad intentions of Asav, and they made him seal the deal, and um, God gave his consent, and there was no way whatsoever that um, Asab could now renege on it. And that's also um, kind of like why he is called Edom, that he had to eventually, at the end, land up being, uh, being, being silent about, uh, about the entire thing. One other interesting thing is that you can see that Yaakov had indeed um, given an entire meal, was preparing an entire meal for Yaakov, for, sorry, for Yitzchok, because he actually gave, he took, he, he kind of miced, he kind of like gave a bit of everything that he had prepared for Yitzchok. Now we're told, if you recall, that we needed to, uh, we need to give a mourner to eat and to drink. And you can see here from the words, Vayuchal, and he ate, Vayeshd, and he drank means that Yaakov, in fact, gave him of the meal in its entirety. He ensured that, you know, he, he, he gave of absolutely everything that he was preparing for, um, for, for Asaph. And so in almost a flash, basically Asaph sells his right to the world to come, his right to all the blessings, his right to be buried. I'm going to go for a bit of a break and then sum it all up. When God created the lofty mountains, the oceans teeming with life, the planets and the galaxies, God also thought the world needed one of you. What did you do today to better the world? Big or small, we would love to hear from you. Email Kathy with a K at highfm.com. Share your story. Inspire others. Change the world. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. And we need to sum up this entire story. What we do see is the repercussions um, of selling the birthright. Um, Asa clearly didn't think it through. 
But um, as we as as we move down, you will see move along in the Chumash, you will see that that is why Yaakov lands up getting the blessings of the firstborn. And by the time Asaph comes in, um, because again he's sitting and hunting in the field, um, it's too late, and he actually says to his father, "Is there anything else left for me?" So Yaakov, in fact, by buying the birthright, buys the right to. Uh, father the Jewish people to be buried in the Maratha Machpelah, to inherit the land of Israel, and to be the rightful uh, father of the Jewish people. Esau literally sells him out. I guess one of the lessons, the powerful lessons that one can learn with that is that in this world, this world is a world of physicality. We are surrounded with materiality all the time, and um, one should not keep a very narrow view of who we are and what we are, and that the pleasures of this world is the be-all and end-all of living in this world. But rather to understand that there is a God, there is a destiny, there is a, a purpose, there is something far greater that each and every one of us are put into this world other than uh, accumulating physical stuff and satisfying our physical bodies. There's something much greater spiritually, and as Jewish people we've inherited that from Yaakov, and that we have choices in this world and as always, we pray and we ask um, God to help us make the right choices that we live a life of morality, a life of goodness, a life of commitment to Torah and Mitzvahs, a life of commitment to God and commitment to our fellow human beings. Sometimes it is uncomfortable. We, we sometimes have to forego that which is physical in order to, to show another kindness to another human being. But that is, in essence, has always been the calling of history. And, and to this very day, and very much so now, um, it is the calling that, that I think that really one of, one of the lessons of COVID is, is to look beyond the physical uh, differences that we have to a, to a much greater uh, viewpoint where we see that, in fact, we are all one and we are here to serve each other and to serve God. And with that note... I wish you all a Shavuot of a great week, a healthy week, hopefully a sunny week. Um, here in Joburg, we've had enough rain, uh, I think, to last us the week. And uh, please, God, I'll be back same time, same place next week. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.